Good evening. It is a joy and a privilege to be here before you this evening. Uh, I love to be able to speak about my God and my King. But as I was preparing for this, it's a whole different experience to be able to talk about the God and King you so love and how He has worked in your heart and in your life. It's a, a healthy experience to think about how God brought you to himself. So I am privileged and honored to be able to share with you what God has done for me. It is an interesting uh, thought I had as I was preparing for this, as I look out before so many people that I love and appreciate, I realize very few people, if any, knew me before I was a Christian. Everyone in this room knows Chris as the disciple of the Lord Jesus. Everyone here knows Chris as the director of young adults. Everyone knows me as someone who has followed Jesus, but that is not the entirety of my story. God changed me. God saved me. He brought me to himself, and I get the joy of telling you exactly how he did that. And what we're going to look at tonight, if you have your Bibles with you, we're going to look at Luke 18. We're going to be focusing in on verses 9 through 14, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. And I chose this verse for two reasons, as Pastor John already spoke about. One is a beautiful illustration of what happened in my life, the change that happened. But at the same time, I had to do a little digging. Uh, Daniel Hill, a man who led me to the Lord, I, I was getting bombarded with all the texts that we, we had studied 10, 12 years ago, and I had a conversation with him, and when he put all the verses in front of me that we had covered, this stuck out to me. So not only does it illustrate God bringing me to himself, it is also a text that, as I looked at it, had a huge impact on me as a person. So let's pray. We're going to read this text, and then it's a little story time, all right? <laughs> story time about King Jesus, all right? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your love and your compassion. You are good and do good. I pray that hearts would be full of awe and wonder as we hear how you worked in my heart tonight. I pray that Jesus, I pray you would be exalted in my story. Holy Spirit, encourage us, challenge us, and if need be, open eyes to see you tonight. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So look down with me at Luke 18. We're going to start in verse 9 and we'll read to verse 14. To some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everyone else, Jesus told this parable. Two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax collector. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I am not like other people, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week, give a tenth of all that I have. But the tax collector stood at a distance. He would not even look up to heaven, 
but beat his breast and said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. In Luke 18, Jesus is telling a parable. He's telling an earthly story with a heavenly meaning about a Pharisee and a tax collector. Luke 9, or Luke 18, verse 9, tells us exactly who this parable is directed to. Look what it says. To some who trusted in themselves, trusted in their own righteousness, and looked down on everybody else. This parable is directed towards them. In the parable, Jesus contrasts these two individuals, the Pharisee who represents self-reliance, pride, and the tax collector who represents a posture of need and humility. And the question Jesus answers is not just who will go home justified, but how will that one go home justified? How is he justified? This whole text is a contrast of two individuals. But I don't want you to miss this. In the midst of all this contrasting, there is one similarity. In the midst of these polar opposites, there is one link that connects them. Even though they have different postures of why they go up, even though the outcomes when they go back down are different, there is one thing linking these two together. They both go up. They both went up to pray. This is where my story begins. In this parable, Jesus is contrasting two who have gone up to seek God. And for me, when I read this parable, I was neither one of them. If I were to summarize the entirety of my life before Christ, it is sheer indifference. Unconcern. No care for the God of heaven above, the creator of the universe. I cared not. I was just flat out indifferent. And let me explain. Growing up, I had one focus, and that was success, whether it be academic success, athletic success. It was just success. That was the story of my life. And when you are on a pursuit of academic success, athletic success, you don't have time for the Lord of glory. Purely indifferent. And I was so uninterested in him that for 19 years, very little of who he was crossed my mind. And this is a dangerous place to be. This is no safer than uh, the person who might say, I am hostile to God. I am upset with God because this happened. The reason this is so dangerous is because of how easy it is. But it is still opposition against God. I was still opposed to God. So for the first 19 years of my life, 
I was indifferent, and I'm walking onto the campus of Presbyterian College, and God has a plan where I'm going to meet this indifferent soul. I'm going to meet him. As I'm strutting my stuff down uh, the street, ready to get mine at Presbyterian College, whether ready to be the big dog on campus, God was like, I'm not just big dog on campus, I'm big dog in creation. And you are about to come into contact with me. And this is what happens. I'm going to show you how dogged God was for me. Day one of orientation week, I run into four disciples of the Lord Jesus. Four disciples in one day. One was an orientation leader. Excuse me, it was three. One was an orientation leader. Another was a baseball teammate. And the third happened to just, at the end of the evening, come knock on my dorm room door and say, do you mind if I share Jesus with you? And you know, I wanted to be hospitable. So I said, come on in. My roommate and I, we were teammates. And he laid before us the gospel of God's grace. He talked to me about my sin. He talked to me about God's grace and the finished work of Christ. And at the end of it, he called me to respond to that beautiful message. And you know what I did? I flat out rejected it because so little pre-evangelism had been done in my heart. These words we take for, for granted, words like grace and sin, they were flying over my head. I had no idea what he was talking about. So when he called me to respond, there was one thing that I felt compelled to do. You go about your business. And I even, to this day, remember my response as he closed that door. I laughed at him. <laughs> Snickered. Little Jesus freak. Not knowing a couple years later, I might get called that. <laughs> But God wasn't after me. That's not enough to stop the God who can make the heavens and the earth. So I had a baseball teammate who I respected quickly. He invited me to study the Bible with him. And after studying the Bible, there was a pendulum sh shift. No longer was I indifferent, but I began feeling this unexplainable weight. And the pendulum shift went from indifference to self-righteousness. This self-righteousness is just as dangerous as this indifference I was talking about. Let me show you. Look at Luke with me. In Luke 18, 11 and 12, we see the Pharisees' postures towards God. His posture can be summed up as self-righteousness. The grounds for his relationship with God were twofold. One, he was like, God, I thank you that I am not quite as bad. I'm not as bad as these people to my right and to my left. I'm not a tax collector. I'm not an adulterer. I'm not an extortioner. Thank you, God. That's not how I am. Ground number one. Ground number two for his relationship with God was, and also, look at all the stuff I do. I pray. I fast. But look at how deceptive being good can be. 
Later on in verse 14, near the end, as Jesus is explaining the parable, he says, I tell you, this man went down justified rather than the other man. And he was not talking about the Pharisee. The Pharisee did not go down justified. He still stood condemned. Even though the Pharisee in all of his uh, actions was good, even though if somebody saw him, they wouldn't question, is he a Christian? Even though he was wrapped in good works, he was not justified because the foundation of his relationship was those works and not in the finished work of Christ. When this pendulum shifted, I was still as condemned as I was when I was indifferent. So it was the fall of my sophomore year. I told you, I had started studying the Bible. The pendulum shifted, and I moved to self-righteousness. What happened was I was studying the Bible with my friend Daniel, who eventually led me to faith. And as he was opening up the scriptures to me, I understood the weight of my sin. And as much as one could, I understood that I was sinful before a holy God and something had to get fixed. Like I was aware enough and the spirit had impressed upon me enough to know that there is a reality, that there is a bridge here by my sin, by my indifference, by all the things that I had put before him. There was a reality there. But what I did, instead of responding to the finished work of Christ, I said, let me move from indifference to cleaning up. Let me move from not caring to caring a lot. Let me move from putting everything above the Lord to putting him above all things. So I went on a pursuit of being better, doing better going to church, reading my Bible, doing all these things. In my mind, if I was no longer a liar, if I no longer was a cheater or an adulterer, I would be accepted by God. I figured in my mind, if I did go to church, read my Bible, participate in small group, I would be good. Sounds a lot like that Pharisee, doesn't it? If I stop doing this, don't do these things, and I do these things, God's going to love me. That's what I thought. God was still working in my life. Because of all this outward exterior change, I got invited to a small group. Uh-oh. Brother didn't know what he had. <laughs> what he, had. he barked up the wrong tree, as they say. And I'm over here. We're no longer just studying the Bible. Now we're about to start talking about confessing sin. <laughs> in my mind, I'm like, Okay, pump the brakes, what I got myself into. And five or six of us got together and opened up the scriptures. We studied God's word, yet we went a step further. And I have these Christians around me confessing sin and praising God for his mercy. And I'm over here, look, you know when you're supposed to be praying. And I'm over here looking like, what are they talking about? Aren't Christians perfect? Aren't Christians good? That's what makes you a Christian. You no longer do these things. You don't struggle with these things. Your boy was sitting in those small groups 
perplexed. And it just so happened one night, we had small group. Oh, I remember it like it was yesterday. We studied the scriptures. After we got done, it was a time for confession. The same things we do here on Sunday morning. We confess our sin and we pray the scriptures of forgiveness over us. And I'm hearing these men, these Christians, these disciples confess sin and praise God for his mercy. And it was there that I began saying, I don't have this figured out. Something's off. Either they're off or I'm off. What does it take to be justified before God? Because it sounds like good works doesn't get it done from the text and from what I'm seeing amongst these Christians. Good works doesn't get it done. So what gets it done? Let's look in Luke 18, and then we're going to look at verse 13. But the tax collector stood at a distance. A tax collector stood at a distance. In case you don't know, the tax collector, he's a obvious sinner. Public sinner. He's a traitor by trade. Outwardly, people judged him not just a sinner, but they condemned him as one as well. This man, this sinner, stood far off. The text even says he wouldn't even put his eyes in the direction of the Lord of glory. He wouldn't even look up. All he would do is beat his chest and say, God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. The text collector recognized his sin, not in relation to other people like the Pharisee, but in relation to the holy God of the universe. And he pleaded on the grounds of God's mercy. His hope was not that he would start doing the right things or stop doing the wrong things. His hope was in one thing, the mercy of God, nothing else. That was the foundation of his relationship, God's unmerited mercy and favor. Let's go back to 2007, sitting in this dorm room. We've just got finished praying. I've just heard five other Christians confessing their sin. And I walk out that room, I'm frustrated. I'm perplexed, I'm confused. What does it take to be a Christian? I'm walking down the first floor of Georgia. I, it's weird how you can remember these details. Somebody stuck their head out and said something to me, and I just remember just, eh. all I could think about is this question. What does it take? I'm trying to do better. I'm doing the right things, God. I walk up to the third floor of Georgia, where my dorm is, and normally my roommate is there. So I'm in my mind like, okay, I'm gonna have to switch gears. My teammate's there, we're gonna just switch gears. And I walk through the door and he is not there. And I sit down and I'm running through my mind this confession, this mercy, 
this confession, this mercy. And it is, I have no other way to explain it. It is as if this divine light, this beam of glory hits me. It hits the eyes of my soul and I say, that's who he is. That's who King Jesus is. That's who he is. Savior, Lord, King. Not just a stepping stone. That's who Jesus is. It is like scales falling off of eyes, veil lifted up, whatever you want to say, smoke moving out. I could see Jesus for who he was, Lord and Savior. And it was in that moment that I moved from being blind to being able to see. It was that moment I moved from being dead to alive. It was that moment, that moment in my life where I became a new creation in Christ. That's what happened that night. I was changed. I wasn't just simply Chris who started doing new things. I wasn't just Chris who threw a little Jesus on top. I was an entirely different human being because I finally saw Jesus. And my hope shifted. It has been indifference to self-righteousness. Finally, I could say like the tax collector, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And it was that night my life was changed. I was blind. And that night I could see. And I don't want to stop here. There's so much more that God has done and is continuing to do. But I want to offer just three reflection, pastoral considerations from this text and from my story. Just really quickly. First, from my story and from this text, I hope you see that being good doesn't qualify you for a relationship with God. And being bad doesn't disqualify you. Listen to me, church family. Oftentimes with our relationship with God, we look to what we are doing or what we have done to determine if we have a relationship with God. But what the text and what this Bible tells us is no one is automatically in and no one is too far gone. God is on a mission to save a people for himself. He is on a mission to save a people for himself. He is on a mission to save not only the drunkard, but the self-righteous. He is on a mission not only just to save the sexually immoral. He is trying to save people who look to themselves for righteousness. God is on a mission to save people, and he saved an indifferent soul like me. God is after all people to make a people for himself. Second thing, there is only one way, one singular way to be justified before God. One way. It's not a one option amongst a whole bunch. It's one way to be justified, and that is hope in the mercy of God. That's it. 
Hope in the mercy of God, particularly seen in the cross. That's it. It's not what you do. It's not what you don't do. One way. Exclusive. One path. Mercy. 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 The mercy of God. And lastly, particularly, not from the text, but from my story, the last pastoral consideration is this. In my story, God used so many people. Those three Christians I met, Andrew Hawkins, who knocked on my door, Daniel Hill, real people, real names, real people, not figments of the imagination, real people God used to declare a divine call to me. Real people. And as you look at Scripture and as you look at our church and the church in the past, God used normal people who are willing to take a step of faith to reach those whom he has called to himself. And what I say to Daniel and to Ahok, I'm like, you totally ruined my life for the good, but you totally ruined it. You stepped in and proclaimed a gospel that wasn't an add-on, but that changed who I ended up marrying, changed how I raised my kid, changed where I am standing on Sunday at 6.45. Today, they changed everything simply by being faithful, simply by opening up the text and building a relationship and preaching Christ and him crucified. And what I'm saying is I want you to consider what type of experience that might be for you, to play, for God to use you in someone's life like that? I pray that you would be able to experience that. I once was blind, now I see. I pray that you can say that tonight, and I pray that you get the experience of helping someone else see that as well. Let's pray. Father, all we have is Christ, nothing else. Pray this in Christ's name. Amen.